Keith again. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the Globals, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Um, I guess we only met a couple of days ago. True. And I don't know much about you. I do know that you are a professional in knowledge management, project management, and I really admire your passion for the sector. What you shared about the other day as well was something that I didn't have to didn't have the chance to learn at uni. So okay. yeah, I think that was really captivating and really informative. Mm -hmm. But I guess we don't always have to talk about professional issues. Mm -hmm if you don't want to. Yep. Um, so if you were to introduce yourself to somebody who's never met you before, how would you introduce yourself? It would probably depend on the context, but um, yeah. I guess a quick summary. I <coughs> worked in a corporate role, in a number of corporate roles for many years um, in Telstra most recently. Um, I left that position at uh, about uh, 11 years ago now. And I went out, I'd been working in knowledge management. I worked in that role for eight years, and that in many ways to me was the culmination of really what had amounted to several different careers in the one company prior to that. Uh, brought together a lot of different strands of work I'd been involved in, which ranged from IT through to customer consultation um, and uh, project management related activities. And what I went out at the end of that time with Telstra to do was to work in consultancy. And yes, I did some of that, but what I've done mostly over the last 11 years has been working more in educational roles. And as you and I were just sharing before, um, that's embraced a number of fields. Um, knowledge management, yes, that's where I started. Uh, project management. Um, and then I've done work in a number of related areas from HR through to uh, language management and intercultural communication, which is very diverse. And one thing about me that I always like to say by introduction is that I do always enjoy being very diverse in my activities. Oh, that's amazing. Um, outside my professional role, I'm married, we have three children and now three grandchildren. Oh, that's <laughs> a, such an adorable family. That's, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, like doing a lot of traveling. In fact, yeah. uh, my youngest daughter with her daughter and husband are uh, just about coming back from three months caravanning up to Queensland. Oh, wow. And our son and wife and their two children are about to head off in a caravan early next year for two years traveling around Australia. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, which amazing. reflects the fact that we did take our kids around Australia a fair bit when they were younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all seem to embrace that. My other daughter lives here in the city. Yeah. Um, so. I've had a lot of passion for traveling and meeting people from different backgrounds and cultures and I like wow. to see that I reflect that in what I do professionally. Yeah. So whilst I've talked about a lot of topics that I've been involved in education on recently, my um, main interest in all of those topics is looking much more at the human aspects. So the brief summary I gave the other day of the project management uh, or one of the project management lectures I do at uh, Victoria University. Um, it's very much about how people share knowledge within projects and that's one of the things I'm quite passionate about because having yeah. worked in project management yeah. uh, I've seen a lot of cases where people learn amazing things from a project and as soon as the project finishes the team's disbanded and all of that knowledge uh, that experience is pretty much either lost or maybe carried on individually by some of the people yeah so uh, part of what I try to do in that um, that work is look at how do we actually transfer that knowledge, how can people doing a similar project in future gain 
access that knowledge, yeah. which is the biggest challenge, yeah. um, and then apply that in new projects. Um, so I guess at the moment my uh, main activities are, as I said, around these educational things. I'm probably looking more at moving into retirement over the next few years, but <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'll ever completely um, lose the yeah. uh, enthusiasm I have for working with people. Yeah. Um, sharing knowledge and as I said I was saying the uh, the main role I see as being most important when I am in a university context is actually getting people to share their own knowledge yeah yes hopefully I can I can teach them something but they'll only learn that if they can actually experience that in their own yeah. professional work yeah. and personal yeah activities. that is so so interesting because I was gonna ask you actually you really care about the human aspect mm. But we don't always apply the things we learn just for our professional careers mm. or jobs that we do. Absolutely. We also do that in our personal lives. Exactly. Do you teach students to relate that to their personal lives? I probably don't have that as a specific um, sort of upfront goal yeah. as part of the work. But yeah, look in mind always I have that. Um, and. It's actually some work on conversation. Um, I, I do some um, teaching on the you know, use of conversations in knowledge sharing and in innovation. Uh, I base a lot of that on a guy from the UK, David Gertine, who developed yeah. a concept known as the Knowledge Cafe, oh. uh, which is basically purely aimed at sharing knowledge. It's a technique where people just form in groups around small tables. Somebody will introduce a topic not a, a lecture, but maybe just 10-15 minutes outlining a topic and posing a question. And people will then talk around each table for 10 minutes yeah. on how they feel about the question. And then they'll be asked to stand up and everybody move to different tables yeah. and move on. It's based on a concept, earlier concept known as World Cafe, but World Cafe can be very focused on achieving particular outcomes. The main aim of the Knowledge Cafe is just to share knowledge. Yeah with no particular goal or outcome necessarily yeah. in mind. People will apply it in their own way. Yeah. Um, David Gertin has based some of his um, work on some work by Theodore Zeldin, a British um, philosopher who's done a lot of work on conversation. Yeah. And one of the key things to me that's come out of you know, my experience as Zeldin's uh, work through David Gertin is that so often, and particularly people maybe of my generation I think have done this, we tend to view our personal life and our professional life as two totally different things. Yeah. It's like as if we walk out the door in the morning and we unplug our home brain and plug in our work brain oh. uh, and do the opposite yeah. and we come back home again. But to me, there's so much you learn from your own personal experience with family, with friends, with travel with holidays anything yeah. that is so applicable in a work, concept, work context and uh, as Zeldin put it basically we, we really um, reduce the the effect of our capabilities if we don't take our personal experience into account in professional contexts yeah. and some people as I said particularly my generation uh, find that really challenging yeah. because I've been brought up in this you know, whole sort of professional mindset where it's yeah. totally separate, but we only have one brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You <laughs> can reality. you cannot just switch off and then switch on. No, yeah. I mean, and some people seem to do that or attempt to do it, but yeah. you, you really do risk missing a lot. Yeah. Of what you can achieve, both personally and professionally, by doing that. Yeah. I mean, one very simple analogy is that 
part of what you really need to know to lead a group of people uh, is very similar to what you need to know in parenting. Oh. Now that doesn't mean that you treat people at work as being children, <laughs> far <laughs> from it, yes. but some of the aspects of you know, you're working with people and in fact we have a lot to learn from children <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and absolutely. how they view the world Yeah. <laughs> that we can apply in any sort of context. Yeah. And uh, you, uh, again, in our conversation earlier, you did mention uh, people from different generations and uh, following the fair bit at the moment about um, seeming to be some sort of uh, barriers being created between baby boomers and younger generations. Yeah. And I think this is so sad. Yeah, uh, and you talk about is. being in a mentoring conversation, and sure, look, I think I ha would have a lot to offer a younger person in the way of mentoring, but I also have a lot I can learn. Absolutely. People with fresher, newer yeah. insights, that there's new knowledge being created all the time. There's things you would have learned at university that I certainly didn't when I was at university. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. And you have experiences I can learn from. Yeah. So. I actually read an article when I was at uni, so I did a unit on sorry, not managing, but developing people mm -hmm. and high-performing organizations. Mm -hmm. My lecturer was amazing, and she had this activity for us to look at different articles on different sources. Mm -hmm. And I came across this article on mentors and mentees, mm -hmm. where they mentioned that the mentors can sometimes have the role of the mentees in mm -hmm. the mentorship relationship. Absolutely because they, like you said, learn a lot from the younger generation. Yeah. And an example that I learned that I, I think really interesting was in HR. So mm -hmm. a mentor mm -hmm. in HR who's really experienced actually learned from the mentee who just got into HR mm -hmm. because of her new experience in terms of dealing with the organization, the changes in HR and stuff like yeah. so. Yeah. 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 So I think the very fact that a lot of people are open to mentoring is, I think, an example of knowledge management in the real world. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. sharing knowledge and exchanging knowledge in different ways. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, I think the part that you mentioned about, you know, parenting, that mm -hmm. was so interesting, <laughs> the analogy, that's really mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but, because, yeah, at, in an organization, they are not children and, mm -hmm. uh, for example, if we say parenting, there's mm. obviously some aspects that are similar <laughs> and there are some aspects that we can also take from to apply mm. to real parenting with children. Absolutely. So yeah. what did you actually take from that when you were working um, in your professional roles years ago? Look, I, I think what the, another person that's well worth reading some of the work, her work is um, uh, Teresa Amabile, who wrote some stuff for um, um, Harvard, not um, Harvard Business Review. Um, I think there's a, a couple of articles of hers. Yeah. And one of the things she looked at is that uh, organisations today are, are much more based on knowledge. Okay, so whether you're you know, interested in knowledge management as a thing, um, you go back even further um, uh, to the idea that we are in a knowledge age. We're no longer in um, uh, industrial age or even in an information age, much yeah. more in a knowledge age. And the value in organisations today is all about people's knowledge and how effectively the organisation can use that knowledge and how individuals use it. And one of the things that Amabile looked at is that in order for... Uh, people to be successful in knowledge work, they need a lot of creativity. Yeah. 
Now, that's something I know a lot of people I've worked with over the years who find very challenging. I've worked with people from very much engineering mindsets who believe that creativity is entirely irrelevant. Yeah. Um, yet one particular guy that I worked with who said he didn't have a creative bone in his body, um, whenever we had our end of the year sales team uh, celebration, he'd be the first one dressed in drag and up on the stage putting on a show. Uh, <laughs> Do you think maybe that's creativity? Yeah, that is absolutely creativity. And the thing with, that Amabile's work is about is looking at, well, how can we, if, if creativity is what we need to be more effective knowledge works, how can we make teams more creative? Yeah. And some of the aspects of that uh, that her research has shown is effective for pe- making teams more creative is all about the way a leader works with their team. Yeah. And a lot of that is about trusting people to do their own job, you know, some pretty basic human management principles, um, which again in my earlier experience didn't seem to be respected or even believed in, and I think today that's changed a lot, but we still need to focus on that. It means getting to know the people in your team. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a very hierarchical management where you give people orders and expect them to do things doesn't really work with people, particularly today. So a lot of those aspects of working with your team, becoming part of your team in a particular way, um, really relates a lot to how families operate effectively. Mm, yeah, I was <coughs> going to ask. I, I think the same things apply to parenting. Mm, exactly. Because when parents don't allow children to be creative and just give orders, they don't become creative. Yep. And hence later in life when they become professionals the same applies to them at the work in the workplace and you roll out what you learned yeah you keep reapplying the same yeah learnings or mistakes (laughs) yeah so (laughs) it starts it starts at the very beginning of everyone's journey in life that's right when we were smaller if we get to be creative obviously Mm. we will then later on apply that into our real Mm. learning at let's say high school, university, and later on, professional yeah. career. And if you look at some of the work that Ken Robinson in the UK is doing, in yeah. particularly in education of children, um, his view on it is that we are all born creative, yeah. but the standard school system in places like the UK and Australia, certainly, it's very similar, we basically try and beat the creativity out of kids for 13 years at school. Oh, wow. <laughs> Because we have a standardised school system, you have standard grades you have to meet. There are uh, certainly in Australia standard tests you have to yeah. to sit and achieve particular results in. Uh, and then you put these people in the workforce, where in fact being creative would be really beneficial to them. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect of creativity, as I said, people often have trouble understanding what creativity really is. Uh, both my mother and my sister were quite good artists with painting. Um, and I can't draw a figure for the life of me. And I grew up as a kid realising that, well, you know, I'm just not creative or thinking that. And it's only been in more recent years I realised that I started playing guitar, you know, in 1969. Um, I've done other things that are creative. I like photography. Um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of things we all do that yeah. are innately creative, but Absolutely. because of the way we've been um, trained, uh, particularly in you know, junior school, we often don't even recognise the creativity yeah. we have. And of course, the other way you do see this being applied in business today is the whole idea of using game-based activities, yeah. uh, gamification. Yeah. 
um, as a way of achieving results. And I think that um, I'm not an expert on gamification, um, and I think there's certainly a lot we can learn from that. The yeah. fact that you know allowing people to be more creative in order to achieve their results yeah. uh, is going to help their thought processes and make them more effective. Yeah, that's very true. But I think it's not just Australia or the UK. True. The school system all over the world, I guess, mm-hmm. yep. is pretty much in common in the sense that mm. creativity is not really promoted. And for me personally, because I come from Vietnam, the country in Southeast Asia that's not really developed. We are still called a developing country in a lot of senses. And the school system for us is something that is always, we don't want to talk about. Uh Yeah, because um, I think to be honest, when I moved here and started my studies, it changed a lot Mm. for Mm. me in terms of thinking about the work that I get to do instead of I have to do. Mm-hmm. But then I also realized that what yep. you said always makes a lot of sense because for other students in Australia that I've met, that I've mm-hmm. had the chance to talk to, and some of them I, I also have the chance to tutor mm-hmm. in some aspects, mm-hmm. they struggle with the same thing because they don't get to be creative. So it's not just an Australian issue or not just a British issue but I guess it's a global issue Mm -hmm. Um, it's really hard to bridge the gap I think (coughs) because Mm. for us in Vietnam the school system is always changing Uh but it's not always improving right beside the grades that we have to achieve Mm. we always have this pressure of becoming someone and um you know, we have a lot of tests. For example, mm-hmm. when we get to uni, we have to do an entrance exam, which has mm-hmm. recently been eliminated in some way, okay. but not fully because mm-hmm. the pressure is still there. Mm-hmm. And when I, I remember when I got into my undergrad, I took the tests and I was so stressed. I didn't re- really put effort into mm-hmm. looking into what I want to do in life. Mm-hmm. I, w- I knew that I want to do business, but I didn't really look into the different aspects that I can do um, at uni mm. because our system is also not that open. Right. And the majors that we got to choose at uni, I've heard from a lot of people, they were still outdated. Mm-hmm. And till today, mm. as in six years later, it's still mm. the same. Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah, there might be some slight changes, but we didn't get to be creative, but we didn't get to be reflective as well because mm. we didn't get to think about what we want to do. Mm. Mm. But sometimes we have to go under a lot of pressure. Hence, the knowledge that we got somehow turned into something else. Mm. And mm. it was not something that we expected to learn mm. Mm. or not even something that helped us to learn more. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I guess my creativity did indeed improve mm. when I moved to Australia to mm. study for my master's degree. Mm. Mm-hmm. But still, I, I, I still think that there are a lot of other things that we can do outside of uni, outside of school. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Um, even in everyday life, I think we can mm. be creative. Mm. Do you think you are creative in everyday life? Um, no, I, I do. Yes, I do believe I am in many ways. Yeah. Um, uh, but as I said, I often didn't actually you know, really see that in earlier years yeah yeah Yeah, look um, one of the other things about creating work experience um, 
again is that we tend to have this, uh, a lot of people in, uh, again, earlier generations too, this whole concept of control, uh, that uh, people have certain targets they have to achieve. Uh, there's research that shows that if you drive people purely by key performance indicators, KPIs yeah. and targets, uh, if people are doing mechanical work, that is effective. You know, if you are making widgets uh, and you paid $10 to make more widgets, you'll make more widgets. But that's as far as it goes. And what the research really shows is that when people are doing anything that requires above very basic cognitive skills, that, that type of uh, incentive actually has the opposite effect. It reduces their performance. Um, and this is some work that's been summarised by uh, Dan Pink in the book Drive, and there's a really good little RSA video on YouTube of that. Yeah. And the th key things that he summarised that research is that the things that make people effective in a, a work situation, and dare I say in other situations, are autonomy, mastery and purpose. So autonomy, as I mentioned briefly before, if you give people a situation where they can pretty much be their own boss and you are trusting them to do what they can do, yeah. they will operate more effectively. Give people the opportunity to master what they're doing and this is where creativity really comes in. You're looking at um, the examples Dan Pink gives is look at Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Wikipedia is being created by people yeah. free of charge. People yeah. are experts in their own fields who are already working at full-time jobs in most cases yeah. and they just do this. Yeah. as an extra thing for no return. Yeah. This is um, where they learn to be better at what they're doing. Uh, look at people who are musicians. You master an instrument. Well, why do you do that? Well, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I get better at it. Yeah. You know, nobody's paying you for all the hours you put into practice. Yeah. I've never become a good guitarist because I put enough hours into practice, but I enjoy what I do. Yeah. But the final one is purpose. And if people can see some sort of bigger picture purpose in what they're doing, they'll be far more effective at doing it. Absolutely. So the whole idea of paying people to do more, the, the basic thing is people should be paid enough to take money away as an issue. Mm. So that's no longer an issue, they can relax, do what they're doing, but they need to have this goal, this bigger picture as to why they're doing it. Yeah. And so the organisations that can achieve those, you know, awareness of that, awareness of purpose, yeah. will be far more effective. Yeah. I couldn't help but relate that to real life. Yeah, to and absolutely. anyone. Yeah. And I have, I have no experience in parenting, obviously. Sure. But <laughs> I can relate to the way that we've been brought up, mm. our generation, or me and my friends, uh, for and example. And if you have uh, yeah. siblings, younger siblings particularly. And so well, I don't, but the, um, uh, I can relate. Friends. Still. Yeah. yeah, I have friends. I, have, I actually have a diverse group of friends. People mm. who are way older than me and people who are way younger than me. Mm. So when I look at my younger friends, mm. some of the issues that I've noticed recently is the way that their parents really protect them. Mm. And mm. sometimes can be become overbearing or overprotective. Mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'm sure as a, as a parent yourself, you understand these yeah. aspects, but... It's a constant tension when you're parenting, is yeah. to what extent do you need to yeah. protect your children, which yeah, is absolutely. a natural thought, and to what extent do they need to learn Yeah, but I um, Yeah, I, I came across this case that I think really interesting. Maybe you can mm -hmm. shed some insight into it for me, because I, I know there's really a 
this is a really good friend of mine and she's really open to sharing her experience with her parents. Mm -hmm. She obviously really loves her parents, mm -hmm. but there is one thing that she cannot do. Mm -hmm. She cannot cross the road. Okay. And she's approaching 16. Right. Cannot cross the road at 16, I think is a really interesting mm -hmm. thing to come yeah. across. Yeah, yeah. And I asked her, how did that come about? And then she mm -hmm. said, well, my parents do not want me to go out of the house unaccompanied. Okay, yep. Because, you know, our society is becoming more and more dangerous. And yep. this is in Vietnam right. and not in Australia. Yep. yep. Uh, but there are other similar cases in Australia, I believe, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. when I talk to my Australian friends. Mm, mm. And then I talked to her again and I, I asked her, you know your issues, have you asked your parents to you know, let you practice at least by yourself mm. to mm. cross the road? Mm. She, she said, yeah, I have, but they're not open to letting me mm. learn to do so. Mm, mm. And she is a really creative person, and she yeah, creates yeah. scenarios for herself and put herself in situation to do so. Mm. But obviously, because with her parents by her side and with her grandparents sometimes checking in on her mm, mm. and visit her, mm. she cannot do that. Mm, mm. So I relate that back to the thing you just talked about earlier when yep. you just give people a kind of box to fit into yep. Yep. they don't have the autonomy or even mm. they don't even think about going outside of the box anymore mm. and I think for me and my friend because she is my friend I care about her I think it's really dangerous because she's approaching 20 and She's gonna go to uni, she's gonna <coughs> decide on her career, mm. but she cannot even cross the road. So how mm. does that work in the big picture? Mm. Mm. Because that means that there are a lot of other things that she cannot do yet, but she hasn't even recognized herself. Mm. Luckily, she has recognized that she cannot cross the road compared to her friends who are really free in terms of, mm. you know, just traveling around their neighborhood. Yep. Yeah, so I think that is a really interesting case study, even for relating back to what you said earlier. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and look, if I'm ever talking to parents in that sort of situation, the thing you want to think about is, okay, yes, understand you have a desire to protect your children, so that's natural. But at what point will this child be old enough <laughs> to make their own decision? Because yeah. at some point in time, you, the parent, will not be here anymore. Yeah and they'll have to be able to cross the road by themselves. Yeah. Now, is that something they need to find out suddenly in you know 10 years time how to do? Or is it better if they start to learn how to do it now and be yeah. learn to become more autonomous? Yeah. And that's, I know for many parents it's not easy to let go. Yeah. And when you're looking at this in professional situation, it is also very difficult for many people in management yeah. or leadership positions to delegate for that same reason. Yeah. We feel that, you know, oh, look, you've really got to do this job properly or it's going to cost the company money, so let me do this. Oh. But I'm not going to always be there. So I'm going to have to let you do it as my <laughs> yeah. staff and team member yeah. um, because one day you'll need to do it. Yeah. Without me. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Yeah. That's why I said it's so relatable in both yeah. scenarios. Yeah. yeah. It's actually just going back briefly to knowledge management. Um, one of the biggest challenges in organisations where you want to encourage people to share their knowledge is this perception that many people like to hoard knowledge. 
particularly people in very absolutely knowledge hoarding is a huge challenge in many organizations that's that's the first time that i've heard that term because yeah because what what happens people particularly people who are technical experts who have spent a long time in a particular field and build up a lot of knowledge they feel and well I, i should say this is the perception uh, that their behaviour is, is driven by this, they feel that if I share too much of my knowledge with you, you might threaten my job. I might lose my job. Yeah. Um, and then the work I did in knowledge management at Telstra some years ago, we were dealing with the technical product management experts and encouraging them to share their knowledge with the sales force who are less technical. And this was part of the perceived problem. There are many other issues to deal with, to do with in terms of the, the process and systems that were there to enable them to share their knowledge. So that was some of the work we did was purely information management based, I guess, in terms of getting this information recorded in a way that made sense, which involved written um, online document libraries, but also podcasting, videos, all yeah. sorts of means. Yeah. But a number of us in the team had come from working in the, uh, the sales area as technical business consultants. So we had a lot of experience with the people we're dealing with uh, on both sides of this uh, path we were working along. And the real issue with many of these technical experts, they didn't want to hoard their knowledge because they felt their position would be threatened by sharing it. They hoarded it because they didn't think these less technical people in the sales force would sell their product in the right way. That they may put together some options that weren't going to work for the customer. And one of the problems that is, yes, it could mean damage to the company and that we might have you know, lost sales or lost revenue by people cancelling services. And I'm talking here about large customers, business, corporate, uh, uh, government, um, and so you know, fairly complex products. So by actually working with these product managers and saying, well, if we can actually help you share your knowledge in such a way that the salespeople will understand what's involved better, would that make it easier for you to share the knowledge and overwhelmingly yes. Yeah. They needed to be given a position where they knew they could uh, apply the trust, they could trust us to help them yeah. share their knowledge in the right way. Yeah. Because the way it was before they didn't really have that connection to enable yeah. them to to feel they could trust people yeah. with that knowledge. So yeah, people's motivations are not always what they necessarily appear on the surface. Um, but uh, one of the other issues that these people had was that the salespeople would be eternally asking them for information to the extent that many of these people had overflowing voicemail boxes and they're impossible to contact. Yeah. So again, helping them share their knowledge in other ways enabled them to then trust that they could share that knowledge. So <laughs> going back to parenting and uh, leadership, yeah. uh, similar sort of thing. It's just, we've got to get to this point where we feel we can trust this person with this knowledge or yeah. with this um, uh, being allowed to do this activity, whether it's crossing the road or um, you know, making the first contact with a customer or whatever. Um, unless we get to that point of trusting them to do that, we'll be doing it for them forever. Yeah. yeah. Until the time when we're not there and then they won't be able to do it. Yeah, that is very understanding for a lot of parents that they cannot, you know, give up that mm. <laughs> power or a little bit of control because and they want to protect the children. Yeah. True, but still, like you, you said, I think it's really true that, like any o- other organization, I think a family is an organization. And 
the very fact that they share knowledge will help everybody in the family mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's also hard because oh, you, yeah. you've been a parent yourself so yeah, yeah finding yeah. the balance is hard that's right isn't it yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah and that's this is again where going back to where we started mentoring and mentoring across generations yeah can be really important. You yeah. know, parents need to keep that insight of yeah. what it's like to be young, which we forget over the decades. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So being reminded of that. Yeah, so maybe when they mentor younger people, they get that perspective as well. And mm. when they come back to the family after a day at work or after mentoring a younger person, yeah. it actually helps them to envision what's actually happening in the younger generation's yeah. lives and yeah. become more open. In some ways, yep. would you say? Yep. Yeah. Look, something I want to just throw in too is that it, even the, how we work effectively with people uh, as a leader or a parent, a lot of it comes back to some very simple aspects of language yeah. and how words are interpreted. Um, an example I like to quote a lot is the theoretical example of uh, have you ever seen a young child uh, wants a drink of milk and has grabbed the two litre milk carton out of the fridge and is trying to pour it into a glass? Yeah. The natural thing that the parent or older person watching is going to say is, don't spill the milk. Yeah. <laughs> now, the thing is, when we use words, words trigger pictures, and pictures trigger emotions, and emotions drive our actions. So the concerned parent who sounds worried, saying, don't spill the milk, what's the picture you get? Milk being spilled. Yeah. And somebody who's tense. So the child tenses up, and they spill the milk. Um, so rather than focusing on an image of what we don't want, because the word don't doesn't trigger an image. Yeah. It's just spill the milk. Yeah. Um, focus more on the goal you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. And this is what's so important with um, in a performance coaching of people within a team at work is rather than saying you've done this wrong, I want to do it this way, focus on what's the result you want to achieve. Where do I want you to go with this task? You've done all these tasks well, and where I'd like to see you improve is to do this. Mm. So say to the child, you're pouring that milk very well. Yeah. And even if they don't the first time, yeah. they won't have the pressure on them. They won't be trying to avoid a negative image. They'll be trying to achieve yeah. a positive goal. And I've taught this a number of contexts for some years and it's you know been a theoretical thing and yes I've seen similar examples but one day I was sitting with some people in a coffee shop um, a regional town and there was a group at a table near us of adults uh, wanting to have a conversation I had a couple of young, young children at the table and one in particular they uh, obviously wanted to keep busy so they'd done the right thing brought along some colouring books and some pens and pencils great and I just happened to notice the child had opened up the pencil case and was picking it up and one of the parents, the parents said, don't take all the pencils out. <laughs> what did I see happen? <laughs> the child just took all the pencils out. They upended the pencil case, pencils went all over the table, all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what we do to people when we create yeah. images. Yeah. They, they see the image we create. Yeah. Take out all the pencils. Yeah. I think it's more also on being positive in the way you speak. Being that positive, is absolutely. Very important. Being aware of creating the image of the result you actually want. Yeah, to rather achieve. than something you don't want to achieve. Yeah. yeah. Which comes back to letting go of control. Yeah. That is so true. Mm. So interesting. Mm. 
Thank you. <laughs> wow. So if there is one thing that you would say to anyone, regardless of where they are, what they are doing, Maybe they are not even working as a professional. Maybe they're just taking care of the family. But mm. in, in the context of knowledge management and knowledge mm. in general, mm. how can a person gain and share more knowledge freely without the fear of mm. the unknown? Mm. Well, one of the things that I like to picture in this is we tend to be driven by our comfort zones. Yeah. And there's a, if I may use another image, a, a great image for comfort zones. If you get a, a fairly strong rubber band and put it on your thumb on one hand, put your thumb in it and pull it to the, to the limit of the, where it starts to stretch and move that around, that's our comfort zone. Yeah. When we start stretching outside our comfort zone and trying to do things we don't normally do, like trusting people that we are not sure are worthy of our trust or um, letting a child or a team member do something that we think maybe they're not quite up to, we start to stretch that rubber band and there's a tension. Yeah. Now what tends to happen with comfort zones is we tend to move that hand back again to where we started so we take the tension away. But instead of doing that, what we need to start doing is moving where we are now towards that tension. When you start to move out of your comfort zone but become more used to it, the tension goes away. You've yeah. expanded your comfort zone. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. 